You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, so here's the thing. This morning, if you're preaching with us, you're not going to get, um, you're not gonna get a, a, a preaching word today. We try, we've called our sermons here for years conversations, and that's not trying to be cool. Um, that's the hope that what is said here moves into a conversation with you and in your heart, with the Holy Spirit of God, with the Scripture, with other believers in this church family, that you would take that and carry on the conversation somehow. Theology Thursday is a good time to do that because that's when we actually get into what was said this Sunday in more detail in an open conversation. So I encourage you to be a part, especially of this Theology Thursday, because of what we're going to do this morning. But here's the thing. I don't want to offer a preaching word. I want to offer a teaching word. Uh, and so we're going to have some dialogue, hopefully a little bit, but we're going to look through a lot of scriptures. Everybody say a lot of scriptures. All right, so it's going to be a little disorienting, and you might have a Bible hangover by the time it's done, but that's actually a good thing to get when you come to church. So if you have your Bibles, I would open them. If you have your Version app, you can click into it. Uh, if you don't have any of that, then you can look to the screen. And so you ready? Now we're going to sweep through it because there's a big theme that I want to remind us of that I haven't reminded this church of in a couple of four, three, four years it's always woven into what I have to offer us every Sunday, but I want to talk about a particular theme in light of that this day. So Colossians 1, verse 13. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Everybody say dominion of darkness. And transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You see the word dominion? Dominion, that is political language. It shows the scope of authority a ruler has. You with me? So the scope of authority that a ruler has, this is a language of politics, and it's not, a, it's not a good dominion. It's not a good rule. It's the power of darkness. It's the anti-life practices of the world. And we no longer live in this dominion because we've been transferred into another dominion, which Paul calls the what? The kingdom of the Son, God the Father, that's the He actually in the text. When you read the context, that's the He that the Father loves. So we have been rescued from this dominion of darkness. Now, our confession, what is it? I am God's, or we are a chosen descendants. We are what? Royal priesthood, a what? A people for His possession to proclaim what? Of the one who called us out of and into and there's your theme. Romans 14, 17. We are in this kingdom. This kingdom is in-breaking. Everybody say in-breaking. Come on now. Y'all got to participate. I don't know if we brewed coffee this morning, but you, you should have drunk something. In-breaking. So in-breaking, which means manifest, opening up. Everybody say opening up. Uh, that's how we're doing it. All right. So the in-breaking kingdom is another way of saying the kingdom of God that is opening up among us. That Jesus has flung the gates of the kingdom wide open and the reign of God is spreading out. And we are a part of that. We are citizens of that kingdom. Paul says that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Now there's a context here. okay, And that's the other thing I want to say real quick. We're picking verses. So all of them are there in your version. Look at the context. Make sure I'm... I'm I'm leading us into thinking about the context of these scriptures. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but what? Say it with me. Justice... Peace and joy in what? In the Holy Spirit. 
So first off, the kingdom of God is not going to be in me and you alone in our own efforts. It's not in activism. It's not in some sort of piety. It's in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what? Come on, not a matter of what? But of what? Power, right, because it's a reign, it's a rule, there's an authority. It's a matter of power. Hebrews 1, verse 8 through 9, but he says to his son, God, your throne, everybody say throne. Throne is forever. You see the royal language, the political language. And your kingdom's scepter is a rod of what? Justice, you loved what? And hated what? And that is why God, your God, has anointed you more than your companions with the oil of joy. Hebrews 12, 28. Since we have, therefore, and you need to notice therefore, so you need to read the whole context. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. Let's continue to express our gratitude. And with this gratitude... Let's serve in a way that's pleasing to God with respect and all because our God really is consuming fire. So this whole talk about the kingdom, this kingdom that's not talk, that's a power, that's of justice, peace, and joy. This kingdom that we have been transferred into is a kingdom we are receiving. Everybody say receiving. And that's important language. That's active present tense. You're not going to receive it. You haven't fully received it. You and I are actively what? receiving it we are receiving this kingdom we're receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken the whole world can shake but kingdom of god will not come on now when all other world kingdoms and all other nations end up a footnote in the pages of history the kingdom of god will stand we are receiving present tense a kingdom that will not be shaken a never in trouble kingdom and that's who you are in the eyes of God. You are a citizen of that kingdom. So when the world is cracking, when the nation is crumbling, and all kinds of crazy things are happening, where is your anchor? It's supposed to be in the kingdom. Because that is what God offers. So what does this even mean to receive the kingdom? And that's actually what I want to talk about. Like, that was just the introduction. I want to talk about what it means to receive this kingdom. I want to, I want to think through this with, with Scripture. God has come to us in the person of Jesus to disrupt the world as we know it. To disrupt the world as we know it for the sake of an alternative world that is to come. That's the point. Jesus comes to disrupt the world as we know it. To disrupt the social institutions, the religious institutions, the way we think about it, the economic institutions. All of the institutions that dominate the world as we know it, that reflect more the dominion of darkness. Jesus has come to open up a new way, an alternative way, that is more in line with God's preferred future for the world that God wants now. Are you with me? So when Jesus shows us how to be human, he's actually showing us how to be truly human. We sing all the times, I'm only human. That's what we say, I'm only human. No, we're, 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 dis, we're disordered humans. Jesus shows us what it means to be fully, like to be the human we were meant to be. And to live underneath the reign of God and what it looks like in the world. You want to know love? You want to know joy? You want to do your devotionals on peace? You want to do your devotional about how to have a happy life and how to have a happy marriage? Then you got to know about the kingdom. Otherwise, you might do it all in your flesh. And the kingdom of God is about justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
So we need to know. And then when we get it, I think, I mean, I think, I think the writer of Hebrews assumes that when we get what it means to be like anchored in the kingdom of God, that we will live with gratitude. Because we'll get it. We'll get that when America is a footnote in the pages of history, the kingdom of God is still going to stand. Man, you would think listening to the Christians that if that were to ever happen, everything is wrong. The world is falling apart. Chicken little Christians, the sky is falling. And I think sometimes Jesus the king, King Jesus is looking at us and saying, no, no, I hold the sky in my hands. Your little geopolitical reality may be falling, but mine isn't. Your economics may be in trouble, but mine is not. Which one are you going to live as if it's true? I want my kids better. I want my spouse better. I want my life better. And so we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we get after. We work harder, not smarter. We try harder, not smarter. Somehow hoping we can dig it up for ourselves. How's that been working for us? It's exhausting. I'm exhausted thinking about it. God has made promises that God keeps. And when Jesus, as Israel's Messiah King, proclaims the coming kingdom of God as good news and demonstrates the nature of God's reign in the world by forgiving sins, healing the sick, casting out demons, eating with tax collectors and sinners, and welcoming all hearers to leave the reality of the old world that is passing away to embrace the reality of the new one that is broken in if we would just see it. Jesus says, Mark chapter 1, this is, this is what, how, how Mark reports it. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's what? Gospel. Now, I want you to notice what God's gospel is. God's gospel isn't Jesus saying, hey, yeah, 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 I'm about to die so y'all can have y'all sins forgiven go to go to heaven when you die. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus died to save you from your sins so you get to go to heaven when you die. The gospel, which literally means evangelion, which literally means announcement, the gospel is an announcement of good news, and that good news is there is another king of another kingdom that is broken in. Far more gracious, far more benevolent, far more just than Caesar. And all are welcomed. And that's, that's the way it works, right? Now's the time. Say it with me. Here comes God's kingdom. Now, change your hearts. Not a good translation. The word repent. Turn away from living according to the rules of the kingdom you've been more formed by. And now turn toward living according to the rules of the kingdom I'm trying to show you. That's what change your hearts and believe means. Choose your king. The kingdom is inbreaking, meaning it is opening up all over the cosmos. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then what? Everybody say it. Then the kingdom of God has what? Come upon you. So don't think the kingdom is something to come. The kingdom of God has come upon us. The kingdom of God has broken in, not in its fullness, but it is broken in. Jesus even says, when he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable, like, you know, presidents and stuff. Come on now. If Christians, we just get that. 
The kingdom of God is not coming with a new president who believes in it. It's not coming with something observable like that. No one will say, see here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is what? In your midst because the reign of Jesus is already breaking in in front of you. We know Jesus to be God with us. The one to show us God's love and liberate us from the reign of sin and death or the dominion of darkness into God's kingdom of grace to share in God's life both now and forever. So it would make sense then that Jesus, who demonstrated the reality of God's inbreaking kingdom through his withness, everybody say withness, through his withness that Jesus then, upon resurrection, because he demonstrated it in his life, you with me? He demonstrated in his life, his crown of thorns became his crown of a kingdom. And so it would make sense then, in his resurrection, he would spend his time giving commentary to what they had seen, which is what, Acts, what Luke wants us to know in Acts chapter 1, when it says, After Jesus had suffered, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for a period of over 40 days, and say it with me, speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus felt like there was a time that the disciples needed a Bible study. They needed the commentary of what they had seen because they didn't quite get it. Remember, the only people not to abandon Jesus at the cross was John and all the women. Come on, can I get a shout out to the ladies? Like it or not, fellas, that's the way the text reads. All the men cowered down. And the women were like, that's not actually how it worked, but that's how I see it in my head. They were the only ones who didn't abandon him. The only ones. The ones who funded his ministry didn't abandon him at the cross. We're men. Until he gets hard. Jesus needs now to pull all these men and women in a room and say, here's what you saw. Here's what you saw. When I healed the sick, this is what you saw. Even though you think you saw it, you saw this, but you saw, I need you to see something else in addition to that. It's a both and. Everybody say both and. It's a both and, not an either or. So Jesus says, when you see me cast out the demons, this is what you're seeing, but I also need you to see this. When you see me eat with tax collectors and sinners, this is what you're seeing, but I also need you to see this. The also need you to see this part is what I think Jesus is doing here. You with me? All right, have I lost you? All right, because I'm on like three cups of coffee, as you can tell. Like, I'm breaking a sweat up here. I feel like I need one of those hankies in a glass of water. All right. If Jesus spent 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God, I imagine he took them to scriptures to help them make sense of it all, and we should do the same. And here's the thing, because it doesn't take long to see the worst of what humanity's become. We see the hurt, and we see the harm, and we see the hatred of violence, and fear, and anxiety, and sorrow, and in pastors, in an effort to explain this, and elders in an effort to explain this, and devotional writers in an effort to explain this, seem to always take us to Genesis chapter 3 to remind us that this is how it happened. Humanity rebelled against God and the world fell under curse. And so then we begin our telling of the good news with bad news. Right? Because that's what we logically say. We say, well, in order to know how good the good news is, you need to know how bad the bad news is. I mean, is that how it works in life? Hey, I have some good news, Amanda, but first I need to make up some bad news in the hopes that you can appreciate the good news that I can tell you. And so we have the Romans' road to salvation, right? Those pamphlets that have worked since the 60s. 
that always seem to start at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Because we need you to know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's where we start. And that's Genesis 3. And as true as that may be, is that really where it began? Like, is that where the Christian story is supposed to begin? We talk a lot about what humanity has become, particularly in the worst of who we can be. But what was God's vision for humanity in the first place? What was God's intention for you and me in the first place? We know what we did with his vision. We know what he, we did with his intention because we probably just did it this morning or yesterday. The question is, what was his intention your theology can't start in Genesis 3. It's got to start in Genesis 1. And if you start arguing over seven literal days, then you're also missing the point of Genesis 1 through 3, which is written allegorically in Hebrew poetry and not meant to be taken in some actually literal way, but meant to be understood in the narrative that it tells. And the narrative that it's most interested in telling is that God made it all and it was good. And when God made humanity, God made humanity with a vision in mind. Genesis chapter 1, it's up on the screen. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man, what? In our image, according to what? Our likeness. Now, the language here in the Hebrew is royal language. So when, G, when the Lord says to God's self, let's make man, humanity, in our image, according to our likeness, let's make many replica gods. Little icons, that's actually icons, that's where we get icons. Let's make representatives who look like God. Which then makes sense because then they will what? Say it, rule. That was God's intention. Is that these beings that God made in God's own image, which reflect God's divinity and reflect God's authority and power, would then play a ruling role in the world under the rulership of God, as under rulers of the world that God created. And they were ruled the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. You see why Genesis wants us to know? Genesis doesn't want us to forget that God created humanity in God's image because this is the one thing that separates the Hebrew creation story from all the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories that were being told before this. Because every civilization had a creation story. And every civilization that's come before had a after had a creation story. What makes this creation story different is, number one, God doesn't create out of violence. That God brings order to the chaos. And that God creates humans not just to serve him as many little servants to be enslaved to him while he is angry with them, but instead makes them in God's own image. To play a participatory part in ruling in the world. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female because creating the male and female is to find the fullest expression of God. It takes male and female in that way to magnify the fullness of God. Next. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now we've often interpreted that as sexualization, which should tell you more about our society than it does about the text. What that meant was create culture. Like that's literally what it means. I want you to make culture. I want you to create. I want you to grow things and, and birth things and plant things and build things. I want you to make things. This is a culture-making text. 
If you read it within the Eastern eyes, which is what it was written, it's culture making. I want you to make culture. And I want you to subdue it. I want you to rule over it, tend to it, exercise authority and dominion and power over it. I want you to rule the fish of the sea. That was God's design. And if you're struggling to pick this up because you think I may be saying something else, then let's go to the, let's, let's just see where it's all going. Like, let's look at the text where it all lands because this is what we need to see. We need to see that God's vision for us was to share in God's rule and reign. It was to make culture. It was to create and govern all that was as people living under God's own rule and reign. God's desire was to share in God's life, which meant to share in what God does. Come on now. To share in God's life is to share in what God does. That was God's intention. We took that to an extreme, didn't we? In Genesis 3, that's where Genesis 3 comes in. We decided, we were like, mm, we got this. So then, where does this go? How do I know that what I think I'm saying is I think the most accurate way of reading Genesis? Because of what Revelation says. So the next text, Revelation. So if you say, where's it going? Where's it all going? Here's where it's going. Then he showed me the river of the water of life. This is John the Revelator, as we say. Clear as crystal flowing from the, everybody say it, throne of God and of the Lamb. And down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life. Does that sound familiar in the Genesis narrative, the tree of life, anybody? Anybody seeing any images there? Okay. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will worship Him. They'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord will give them light. Say it with me. And they will reign forever and ever. And that is our destiny. Our destiny is to share so deeply in the life of God that we share in the authority of God now. Well, Fred, are you trying to say we become God? I mean, come on, really? Like, don't even, if you ask that question, then you, you don't know me. <laughs> but see, that's the tension we've got to hold. You're made in the image of God, and that has more authority and power than we often give it credit to because we settle for devotionals. Make me a better person. That's our jingle in our devotionals. And Yahweh's trying to say, I want to make you a more authoritative, powerful person. Because what the world needs that's running off the rails is people of power. But not people of power who try to do it according to the world's ways, which is getting more positions and more money and more influence and more authority. You have Jesus. You don't need more authority than that. We just don't live that way. We settle for lesser reigns put our hope in the countries, try to work in the kingdom, rather the other way around. And we settle for lesser reigns. And when we settle for lesser reigns, we settle for a lesser faith. This is where we're headed because this is where we were intended to be. And God's vision for the world will come to be. God will get what God wants. And Paul takes that and says this in Romans 5, just in case, again, we need more connection. 5 verse 17, then 20, 21. It's my favorite text. 
Romans chapter 5 is one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. For by one man's trespass, that's talking about Adam, death reigned. Everybody say death reigned. That's where we get the reign of sin and death is from this text. Through that one man, how much more, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life? Everybody say reign in life. Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You were meant to reign in life. So what does this mean, Fred? Because life doesn't feel like it's always working out this way. <laughs> exactly. Because the reign of sin and death is still at work in the world. But you were meant to be an overcomer. Everybody say, I'm an overcomer. You were meant to be an overcomer. You were meant to be overcomer. You were meant to overcome. You will overcome. There is nothing that will change your overcomeness. <laughs> this is my problem with the English language. There are no words. Death won't have the final word over you. Why? Because you will what? Because of King Jesus. See, the overcoming comes because of King Jesus. So, so joy won't go away because you have the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. You may not feel the joy, but the joy is in you. You may not feel the peace, but the peace is in you. How is that? Because the Spirit of God is in you. You are meant to overcome. We are just too busy living for lesser reigns. We're submitting to Twitter and to Facebook and to social media and the water cooler and our ideology and our notions of religion and our preferences in consumerism. And we're living for lesser reigns. And it's even worse when we baptize the lesser reigns in Christian clothes and think that's the Christianity that God's called us into. You have all of that in you. It's just buried beneath the reign of sin and death that is piling on you at the same time. And so sometimes you need a brother and sister in Christ to say, but you were meant to overcome. And you can overcome, and by the way, you absolutely will overcome, because even if life gives you the worst thing it has to offer, which is death, you still, what? Overcome. But like I've said before, we're so afraid to die, we're afraid to live. And that's a sign that we're living for lesser reigns. It really is. We are meant to reign in life. We're meant to overcome. We don't feel it because we put our faith in feelings, but God's faithfulness is bigger than our feelings. And so what he asks is that we trust in his reign. What we ask when Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of God has come. Don't live this way. Live that way. When we're not feeling as though the reign of Christ is manifesting itself in our life in its fullness, we then start moving back to the world we know better. And the world we know better is the reign of sin and death and how it's been formed. So we reach for the ballots. We reach for the bullets. We reach for the bombs. And that's how we think the world should work. But then Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for them, and bless those who persecute you. And we say, oh, but it doesn't work out that way because we'll die. And then Jesus says, but will you? And what if you don't? But you'll never know. Because you're too afraid to love. Because you're riddled by fear. And fear drives out love. And there goes your compassion. And there goes your kindness. And frankly, there goes your joy. And there goes your peace. And there goes your hope. And Jesus is trying to say, but you're, you're living for a lesser reign. Live for a different reign. Paul's, Paul assumes that we're going we're gonna to reign in life. But the thing is, is we, we're too busy pledging our allegiance to false gods and misguided hopes. And that is the truth. Fred, why are you always talking about that? Because we always seem to do it. Me too. And then our only hope of Christianity is like an escape hatch. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I wish I could go faster. Like, 
Our treasures are, but the world is our home. It's just not in its fullness yet. And we're, we are just passing through, but we're passing through as people who are going to still be here. That's why it's called the new heavens and new earth. And so Paul knows this, right? He knows this. So, so he reminds us of this life that reigns with God now and forever, a life in line with God's vision for the world now and forever, and now this life begins now. And so then Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship then is in heaven. And what you have right now, though, is a bunch of Christians talking about dual citizenship. There's no dual citizenship for the Christian. Our citizenship is where? In heaven. There's only one citizenship. You can't have two. Our citizenship is in heaven. We look for our Savior, forward to the Savior that comes from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our humble bodies so that they are like His glorious body by the power that also makes Him able to what? Subject all things to Himself, which is why the Scripture calls Christ followers sojourners, pilgrims, wanderers. That's the language the Scripture uses for Christians living in Babylon. The language that the Scripture uses for Christians living in the kingdom is citizenship. The language that the Scriptures uses to describe those same Christians living in Babylon is foreigner, stranger, wanderer, sojourner, pilgrim. But we start living for lesser reigns. And there goes our joy, there goes our hope, there goes our peace, because the world has fallen to hell in a handbasket. Right? Right? Inflation is harsh. Disease is rampant. Ideology is crazy. And we put all of them, we, we walk around timid and scared and nervous. And then we, because we live in this place, we can't love fully. There was an early church leader named John Chrysostom. He was a 4th century church leader. Look at what he wrote. If you are a Christian, no earthly city is yours. Of our city, the builder and maker is God. You see that clear distinction in his imagination? Though we may gain possession of the whole world, we are withal. I don't know what that means. But immigrants and foreigners... In it all. We are enrolled in heaven. Our citizenship is there. Let us not, after the manner of little children, this is my favorite line, despise things that are great and admire those which are little. Mm. No, not our city's greatness. But virtue of soul is our ornament and defense. This is a brother who's living in Rome. Who's a Roman Christ follower who's trying to help them see that the church is supposed to be colonies of heaven in the midst of Rome. Working for the good of Rome, out of love for Rome, but not whose allegiance is given to Rome in a way that it would take away the allegiance that was pledged in their baptism to Jesus as king of the kingdom of which they are actually eternal citizens. It's a different way of interpreting the world. We are a holy nation of God in the midst of the nations of the world. And the early church believed this. 
And so how then, Fred, how did the church live with joy and peace? How did they live with such great love? How did they live with such great hope? How did they stand so strong in the midst of a crazy world? You want to know why? You want to know how? It's because they saw the world this way. They understood what it meant to reign in life. Because they knew they were going to share in God's reign now and forever. And they weren't going to settle for lesser reigns. The world was crazy. They eventually got murdered in Colosseums, obliterated, heads cut off, dipped in tar, lit on fire. This was their life. They were actually persecuted. And the church grew. How did the church grow? Because they fermented in the reign of God. And Caesar couldn't take away their joy, even though he could take away their life. Caesar couldn't take away their peace. Even though he could take away their life. And what Caesar didn't know is he actually couldn't take away their life. Matter of fact, when you read the accounts of the martyrs, they would say things like this. If you kill me, I'll live. Like that's what they would say. They would walk into the Colosseum and say, if you kill me, I'm going to live. That was their heart. They wouldn't settle for lesser reigns. So what does all this mean? That was my second introduction. I'm just kidding. I've got two more verses. What does all this mean? Because here's the practical piece. You're like, what's the practical piece? I mean, anyway. Hebrews 13, verse 13 to 16. So now, I'm really, rather, the writer of Hebrews has been unpacking this theme constantly, right? Except like in every way for, for Jewish Christians. So now let's go to him, Jesus. Everybody say it. Come on, outside the camp. Come on now, say it again. Outside what? But we Christians, we love our holy huddles, don't we? Don't we? We love our holy huddles. We love our own Christian things. Christian becomes our favorite description over things we do. Christian clothes, Christian music, Christian camps, Christian schools, Christian this, Christian that, Christian, Christian, Christian. And the writer of Hebrews saying, you've got to go outside the camp now. Bearing what? Well, that's encouraging. Like everybody's like, I don't think, I think I'll stay inside the camp. Like, I mean, the praise music's good here. So now let's go to him outside the camp, bearing his shame. We don't have a permanent city here. Or rather, we are looking for a city that is still to come. So, everybody say so. so. Let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise through him, which is the fruit of our lips that confess his name, which is Hebrew for confessing his reign. And don't forget, because the Hebrew writer knows that I'm going to read this later. And Fred, don't forget to, say it with me, do good and to share what you have. Because God is pleased with these kind of sacrifices. See what I'm saying? We got to go outside the camp. Shame's going to meet us there. But we aren't ashamed because shame is of the devil, like legitimately. And we're going to confess the kingship of Jesus because we believe in the reign of God. And we're going to sing our songs and we're going to raise a hallelujah. 
And we're going to be honest with the way the world is and honest with the way the world works, but we're not going to be afraid of the way the world is and the way the world works. And we're going to do good anyway. And we're going to share anyway. And in a society of inflation and in a, in a culture of scarcity, we're going to share anyway. We're going to do good in a bad world anyway. Because we're going to go outside the camp to the hard places with our eyes set on God's future that is working out before our eyes right now by the power of the Spirit who is within us. And we're going to participate in God's reign in the world and live according to God's vision of the world, trusting in God's promises given to the world to provide all we need to remain faithful in the world. And this is what it means to live as a people who King Jesus reign over. This is what it means to really sing the songs we sang this morning, to read the scripture, to share in the Eucharist. I could have given all kinds of topical messages, and sometimes as your primary voice in this pulpit, sometimes I wonder if I should give you three steps to a better prayer life. Sometimes I wonder if I should give you like these practical things that you can get from very, very talented preachers who give very, very good spiritual pep rallies. But we've had 60 years of that kind of preaching in this country. Easy. We haven't had 60 years of that because that costs too much. But it doesn't cost as much as we think. Like every bit of the joy and peace that God longs for you to have comes when you live in the reign of God. But you're going to have to say no to the lesser reigns. And it's hard. It's hard to say no to the lesser reigns. Because those times, they make us feel more comfortable sometimes. Because inside the camp, there aren't the hard places. But outside the camp, there's the hard places. And he even says that these things are going to be sacrifices. Like, I didn't wake up this morning going, Ooh, woo, can't wait to sacrifice. Like, nobody, like, who does that? I mean, some of y'all who are more mature in faith than I am do that. I don't do that. I'm like, oh, I got to do that thing again today. Right? Like, that's the grit of grace. We are filled with God's Spirit, y'all. You have the Spirit of God. So the joy, the peace, the love. Sorry, let me get it right. The love, the joy, the peace. Say it with me. The patience, the goodness, the gentleness. The kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Self-control. Allison says I always forget one. It's probably the one I had the most problems with in my life. Uh, I probably need to ask her which one that is. We have all of that within us. Why? Because we have who? Okay, yeah, that's the right answer. Uh, that was good. They're like, oh, Jesus, that's the answer. Specifically, you have the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is... The only reason that fruit isn't growing from the tree of my life is because I'm choosing a lesser rain. I can devotional myself till I'm blue in the face. But if I'm not learning how to love my enemy and do good to the poor, if I'm not learning how to love and welcome a refugee family, then I'm just draining out whatever fruit I can and it will not be that good to eat. 
Because living in the reign of Christ says, I was hungry, and you what? Gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you? I was a stranger, and you? I was naked, and you? I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you? Visited me. Matter of fact, Hebrews 13, in the very beginning of Hebrews 13, which I didn't put up here, in the very beginning in Hebrews 13, it says, treat those who are mistreated as if you yourself were mistreated. It's a call to empathy because becoming as one with another is exactly what Jesus did for us. Am I right? So there's no more faithful way to live in the reign of life than seeking solidarity with a neighbor. And especially a neighbor who isn't like you. And so when we choose love that is self-giving, self-emptying, we are reigning in life. How? Because we don't live in a world that chooses that love. You with me? When we choose compassion over condemnation, we are reigning in life. Why? Because we don't live in a world that chooses compassion over condemnation. When we speak truth, we are reigning in life because Lord knows we don't live in a world of truth. When we choose gratefulness, we are reigning in life because we live in a world of constant complaining and not enough. When we choose mercy over malice, we are reigning in life because we live in a world that constantly chooses malice. When we choose generosity over scarcity, we're reigning in life because we live in a world that says, you don't have enough and there's not enough to go around. When we choose God's kingdom over earthly kingdoms, we are reigning in life because we know where our allegiance lies. And so I close with this. When we live by this kind of faith, stay with me, a faith formed by the reality of God's kingdom, as Paul says, of justice, peace, and joy, of love, we can know that God is with us and rewards us because God is faithful to keep God's promises because we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 2 and verse 6. Faith is the reality of what we hope for, the proof of what we don't see. The elders in the past were approved because they showed faith. And here's my favorite part. It's impossible. Everybody say impossible. It's impossible to please God without faith because the one who draws near to God must believe that he exists, which is a low bar, and that he rewards people who seek him. And that's my favorite text, that he rewards people who who seek him. Beloved, seek God, you will be rewarded. Seek faithfulness, you will be rewarded. Seek the reign of Jesus, you will be rewarded. God will reward you. That's what it says. You've got to believe that he rewards those who what? Come on. Not those who are perfect, but those who are what? Yeah, not those who got it all together, but those who are what? Not the pious, but those who are what? And that's the point. So when you turn to Scripture, you're seeking God, He'll reward that. When you turn to prayer, you're seeking God, He'll reward that. When you do good to your neighbor because that is your conviction, and you are seeking God, He will reward that. When you press in to learn how to love an enemy, and you do it because of your faith, you are seeking God, and He will what? There is nothing you won't do in seeking God that He won't reward. And that's the good news, because that's what a good king does. A good king says, she's, she's seeking me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to reward that. That's what a good king does. And we have a good king. So turn to prayer.
often. That's seeking God. Turn to scriptures often. It's seeking God. Meet with others to talk about faith. That's seeking God. Be kind to others because of faith. That's seeking God. Don't repay evil with evil. That's seeking God. Love your neighbors. You love yourself. That's seeking God. Do good to others and live generously with your time and resources because your faith. That's seeking God. Tell the truth and speak truth to the powers that promote injustice. That is seeking God. Gather with God's people every time they gather. That is seeking God. You are a citizen of a never in trouble kingdom and you are created to reign in life by participating in God's reign in the world. And if you believe that and you start living as though that is true, you are seeking God and God will reward you because that's what grace does. And every time we come to the table, we're coming to the table seeking God. And guess what God's going to do? Reward us. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.